Welcome to this Kessler Foundation podcast. The Foundation is a global leader in rehabilitation research that seeks to improve cognition, mobility, and long-term outcomes, including employment for people with neurological disabilities caused by diseases and injuries of the brain and spinal cord. In this episode, we are talking with Dr. Trevor Dyson Hudson. He is the director of the Center for Spinal Cord Injury Research and the Center for Outcomes and Assessment Research at Kessler Foundation. He spoke with Rob Gerth, the Foundation's Communications Director. I need to start right here, which is you started all this for me. So when I first got here, I don't know if you remember this or not, I visited you in your office and we, we talked about a particular study that you're working on uh, having to do with shoulders and knees. That's really two different studies. And you and I, you talked to me for like an hour and a half. <laughs> and it was great. And I was like, ah, I should have recorded this. This is a show. <laughs> so, so since then, I've interviewed a bunch of folks and finally gotten back to you. Okay. So now we can finally have our show that great. we were planning Good. to have. Good. So here's where I want to start then. Is, is, so you're an MD right? Uh, here in a world of mostly PhDs at the Kessler Foundation. Does, how does that change your perspective being an MD? Oh, I think you know, my training is from the clinical perspective. So I'm looking... I'm looking at the individual and the challenges or the medical conditions or whatever conditions that they're facing and how research may impact that. Uh, whether you know these are ways to treat a medical complication associated with the condition. Um, I mean, as so prior to my injury, I was interested in research. And so um, I think I, I wanted to incorporate research. I was an MD, but I wanted to be an MD who also did research um, because I saw the importance of doing research. My grandfather was a researcher. My oh, parents really? were researchers. Like what kind of researchers were they? Well, my grandfather used to be director of Cold Spring Harbor um, Molecular Biology Lab back in... Oh, during World War II. In fact, he um, he was one of the, the pioneers in uh, amplifying or uh, penicillin uh, production. So kind of the earliest stages of molecular biology, yeah. so to speak. And, and even the concept of resilience. So the concerns about that. So antibiotics were just kind of coming into their own at that point. Um, and... So, you know, but the, there's one thing about producing it in small quantities in a lab and another thing producing it in mass quantities to be supplied to newly injured soldiers who are fighting in World War II. Um, and so he was, that was one of his areas of research. Um, but then during the course of that time also is the concept of bacteria becoming resilient to these things. Mm -hmm. And so, so he was director of Cold During kind of the transition when Cold Spring Harbor uh, Laboratory was not Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. It had a separate name. And I really should know the history of this. <laughs> I've read it so many times and my mom's drilled it into me. <laughs> so... so um, but, you know, so he was a molecular biologist. My mom started in that area, but then transitioned, actually when she met my father in England, transitioned to cultural anthropology. So, but she approached it from biological anthropology point of view to, you know, 
bringing in the biology of, of anthropology. And so, uh, so they, they were researchers, so kind of grew up in that type of household, you know, university, academia, but at the same time doing field research. They did their field research in East Africa. Did so, you know, yeah, they... I spent, uh, so as a kid, wow. my, my brother and sister, uh, who are older than me, uh, you know, grew up in the Sudan. Um, and then parts of Uganda, and then when I was born, we were in the States. And then luckily for me, my teenage years, uh, got to spend some time, went to school in Kenya. Wow. Which is actually where I learned how to play rugby. Uh, and, you know, loved rugby. You know, I played in high school, I played for a club, and I played for the under-21 national team. So, uh, so I, I really loved the sport, and then it, when I came back, you know, it, what inspired, drove me to want to play rugby in college, too. Um, and it was something that I continued to play um, in medical school, and that's how I had my spinal cord injury. Right, for people um, who don't know you, you are a spinal cord injury. I, uh, back in 1992, I sustained a spinal cord injury. Um, playing rugby, I tackled somebody the wrong way, broke my neck. Um, and, uh, you know, and was, you know, cervical level, so, you know, C6, C7, you know, complete for those who know what that means, mm -hmm. meaning I have no sensation or motor function below the level of my injury. And, uh, and so, and that, of course, drastically changed my life, you know, so. Yeah, and we'll get into that a little bit if you don't mind, but let me, let me go back to your, your parents there for a second. And so, did when you started out, how did you get on the path to be a doctor? Like, and, well, and that was it. Was interesting because I actually I wanted to do marine biology, so I went to UC Santa Barbara. I think it was midway through my sophomore year there. I was, uh, you know, kind of just not feeling all that focused, and I took an interest. And I had no interest in going to medical school, uh, really. Um, even though I, I was taking the same classes as pre-meds, I just kind of like, you know, I don't, I'm not one of them. <laughs> um, and uh, so I, I was kind of feeling lost and I wasn't quite feeling like I wanted to, uh, this concept of going to school and going and getting more degrees and all that. And so uh, I was did an intro to clinical medicine uh, class, which... Part of it was teaching you how to do taping for the athletic teams and things like that. And so I really enjoyed that. And so I was working in the medical clinic doing taping for, for the teams and uh, started to become interested in sports medicine idea of things. And uh, um, so became interested in maybe going to PT school. Um, and so uh, I thought that was really interesting. And then my dad was like, well, what about medical school? And I'm like, I'm not smart enough to go to medical school. <laughs> and he said, oh, you never know unless you try. <laughs> and so I was like, yeah. So then I, I, took, uh, I took the MCATs and I did very well. And so, I mean, because my grades in, med in, high in college weren't that great. <laughs> they really weren't. I mean, I did well enough, but you know, there was, I, just was, you know, I, uh, yeah, I just never, like, I wasn't 4.0, you know, at anywhere near that. And so, but I did well, uh, you know, well in the medical MCATs. And the other thing I did, which was great, was I, 
uh, you know, so then I started thinking about it. So after I graduated from college, I'm like, well, let me, I took the MCATs to see how I would compare to other people applying. And then I decided to take uh, a couple years off, um, you know, to work um, and apply to medical school. And so I think that was one of the best things I ever did because it allowed me to step away from going to school, do some work, um, you know, just kind of relax, you know, have some, finally have a little money, um, you know, for what it was. Uh, and what kind uh, of work did you do? I worked, and that was a great thing. That really helped me, I think, a lot get into medical school. This was, I was in upstate, so I moved back to New York, upstate New York, which is where I'm from. So I, I worked in a molecular biology lab with uh, Ray Wu, Dr. Ray Wu, um, who was, I just answered an ad um, in the Cornell Times, and, uh, and what it was, I originally had intended to take a year off uh, while I applied for medical school, and he really wanted a research assistant who uh, would take two, two years off because he found that it takes six months to really train somebody. Right. And he doesn't then want them leaving after six months. So, so I said, you know what? That fits in with my plans because <laughs> uh, I really had no plans. And it actually took a, a lot of pressure off me because, you know, in only taking a year off, I would have to be applying for medical schools right away. So, so you know, it, it really helped take pressure off me. I relaxed. You know, I bought a dog, you know, I just did all these <laughs> things that like you could do when you have more of a less, like more of a normal working life. Right. And so, um, so I worked for two years with him and that was a fantastic experience. He was uh, actually one of the first people to sequence DNA. Um, so, and, uh, but one of the most humble people I had met, he was from China. Um, and did a lot of uh, collaborating with uh, Taiwan um, and actually was very instrumental in setting up their molecular biology program. But he had a large lab, so it was mostly graduate students and postdocs and visiting scientists. So there's about 20 people in his lab. Um, and so I was the kind of the, the lab coordinator. Um, so I was the scut monkey. I did all the work. <laughs> but it was great because, uh, you know, he, he had a lot of grants and he, I was the one responsible for ordering supplies, for doing all those things. And, you know, he would come and say, you know, I have this amount of money, you know, and we need to spend it by this time you know, go and buy stuff for the lab. <laughs> so it was nice. So we always had plenty of stuff and the latest equipment because because of his reputation, um, companies were reaching out to him to try new um, technology. Right. So one of the earliest ones, which was interesting, was this concept of, it had just been published in Science Magazine, of a polymerase chain reaction. This way of taking DNA, small amounts of DNA, and replicating it so you have more. <laughs> and so PCR. Um, and uh, initially it had been done in a lab and this company had developed a machine that would do it faster. Um, so we got it and he wanted us to try it out. But if you think about it now with all the crime stories and all this of where they find DNA samples, 
PCR analysis is, you know, a way that we take small amounts of DNA and amplify it to to be able to identify potential, mm. you know, criminals or these other things. So it's really become mainstay in a lot of things we do. Wow. But it was, you know, so but it was learning all these techniques. Um, the thing that was nice was he was working with uh, rice. Uh, so molecular biology, transforming, making resistant rice, um, resistant to diseases or, you know, things now that are actually quite controversial, but, it, you know, at the time seemed, you know, you want them to be disease resistant. You want like genetically modified food. Ge is that gen it's basically, yeah. yeah, genetically modified food, which is, you know, at its basis is a great idea because rice is lacking certain vitamins and so, or, or resistance to certain fungus or other things. And so if you can, you know, create these types of rices that grow in conditions, then you can, you know, address hunger in certain areas or address malnutrition because they're lacking certain vital nutrients. Um, by by transforming this, by genetically modifying. So you were it. part of that. Is like you were at the beginning of this. I was beginning at the whole GMO thing. Yeah, you know, wow. and in fact, you know, many of the the graduate students. I mean, the place to go work was Monsanto, right? Which is yeah, now yeah. a lot in the news and for you know for negative negative reasons. But you know, I think it all started with the the idea of of improving our crops. And how did all this get you to med school then? So, well, what it did, I mean, I still, I, my clear interest was medical school. Um, so at that point, and this was just giving me kind of a lab background and an intro, um, like to um, molecular biology, all these techniques would apply to medical school. Hmm. So I think the fact that, you know, I did well on my MCATs and he wrote me a very good letter of recommendation. <laughs> not a bad letter to have Not, not a bad letter. Yeah. I think it really, <laughs> and also I think medical schools were very interested in um, uh, students who were interested in research. Because yeah. it was just when genetics, molecular biology was really starting to take off. I mean, some of the early debates of, you know, HIV, and AIDS, you know, you know, uh, I still during that time a science article, you know, point counterpoint: HIV causes AIDS, HIV doesn't cause AIDS. You know, now we do know that HIV, you know, is the the, the virus that causes AIDS. But um, the but it was just kind of this early stage of, of learning all this, and so. Um, so, I mean, so I, I think it was, I became very interested in medical school. You know, I did volunteer work at the local hospitals in the emergency room. And this was a job that gave me practical skills that could then be applied, you know, if I wanted to do molecular research on the human level uh, while I'm in medical school. Wow. So, uh, so you ended up at Albert Einstein in the in the Bronx. yeah, and that's one of the things that I really liked about Albert Einstein was so uh, it had a very strong research background. I mean, it was a, a, a strong research program there. Um, I had contemplated whether I would want to do an MD PhD or some mm. MD kind of combination thing um, eventually or later on, but. Uh, um, but, you know, really at my truest heart, I guess, growing up as a kid, 
you know, I always wanted to be Hawkeye Pierce. <laughs> so I love trauma, you know, and I loved, uh, you know, emergency room stuff. So, wow. so one of the reasons why I really liked Einstein was that it was in the Bronx. Um, it was a level one trauma center had a very active emergency room. Right. Um, I'm from upstate New York, um, so I grew up in a town of about 1,200 people. The Bronx was just like this crazy place for me. <laughs> yeah. And what I liked about Einstein was, if you've ever been there, it's over by Orchard Beach, and uh, and there's a lot of green and parks mm. in the Bronx. and. So on paper, you look at the Bronx and it's got a bad reputation, especially, you know, growing up during the 70s um, and going out to Long Island to see family, you drive across the South Bronx and you'd see these burnt out neighborhoods. Mm, yeah. um, so it had a negative, uh, you know, connotation. But when you actually go there, it was just, there's all this green parks in certain areas. And since I had my dog, Mm -hmm. um, I went there, actually when I went for my interview, I went there and I saw people riding horses. Wow. Uh, you know, because between the two, um, on, on Pelham Parkway, uh, there's a, a green splotch for, with a horse path. Mm. There's a huge park out towards uh, Orchard Beach that has stables. So it was like, wow, you know, if I can, here's a place that's almost like the country in the Bronx where I can do, like, look at, you know, trauma and ER kind of things. Yeah, so, stuff you love. So yeah. so you got injured in your third year there. Was, when you were injured, was it a help or a hindrance to have all this medical knowledge? Well, that's, yeah, no, I, I think, yeah, at times it was a help and times it was a hindrance because I'd be going through my mind all the things that I could be having. Right, right. Um, but, I mean, it helped me understand it. I think people sometimes assumed I knew more than I did and so wouldn't necessarily explain things. Right. Um, and so, uh, but I think it helped me in many ways because I was you know, I was a member of the club, so to speak. Right. A, I was part of the tribe. Because you were a doctor. Because right. I, well, I was a medical training. student, yeah. but it was kind of like, you know, people are like, oh, you're kind of, wow, there but for the grace of God go I. Right. You know, um, here's a person who, you know, and it's not, not some exclusionary thing, it's more of just common interests. We right. speak the same language. Right. I, I right. often will use that term, you know, part of the same tribe. Because, you know, if you're in a wheelchair, you're kind of part of a, a, a tribe, a group, a brotherhood or sisterhood. Right. I mean, not that we all have the same experiences, but there are some shared experiences. So, um, and so those, those, you know, similarities can bridge gaps, I guess. And how does it, how do you think now, these many years later, did it, well, let's talk about, so when you first dealt with your injury, did that change your trajectory as far well, so, as what so you thought you wanted to going do? Going back to a couple of things, so I mean, so, so even like being, having some medical knowledge, I knew nothing about spinal cord injury. So uh, it certainly did not prepare me for having an injury. Right. Uh, I had had a rotation in rehabilitation prior to my injury and had had patients 
with spinal cord injury. Um, so as a medical student, you, you, know, you follow certain patients. And I remember making note of things that they're able to achieve, like transferring from their bed into a wheelchair and back, and whether they can do that independently or not. But it, the significance of that never occurred to me. Right. And then I'm lying there paralyzed, completely paralyzed in bed. Um, and at first I couldn't even move my arms. I couldn't even scratch my nose. Mm. I, I make this joke and you can cut this out, but you know, who, <laughs> you know who your friends are when they'll pick your nose for you. <laughs> um, so because it is, you think about the simple things that you cannot do with your hands and it's like you're sitting there and you can't breathe. And so, but or even scratching your nose and it's like trying to just do these simple things and I couldn't do it. Um, but I knew nothing about spinal cord injury and I suddenly felt so alone and so unprepared and very scared um, and overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. So even though I had this medical background, I, you know, nothing, nothing prepares you for a spinal cord injury and I think there are probably, you know, few diagnoses. You can count the number of diagnoses on your hand that you don't want to hear. Mm -hmm. You know, you have cancer mm -hmm. um, or you're paralyzed or your loved one's paralyzed mm -hmm. because they have such, you know, negative um, kind of gloom and doom uh, connotations to them. Um, and so, and then, so suddenly to be in that and just, just so overwhelmed. So yeah, so that, so it certainly changed my trajectory yeah. in terms of, you know, cause I'd gone from, you know, interested in orthopedics. So given my sports background mm -hmm. and that interest, you know, orthopedics was a big interest. Trauma was potential because I just, I really loved, you know, that kind of, I'm kind of a, an immediate gratification person. The excitement of that, yeah. Yeah, like somebody comes in bleeding and you fix it. Right. You know, versus I, 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 I appreciated psychiatry so much and I did well in that rotation. But to, to feel like when somebody comes in and sees me and I can't fix them right. by the time they leave <laughs> was just kind of overwhelming. I mean, and kind of uh, short-sighted that I, you know, I can't, you know, somebody who, you know, has having panic attacks, right. I can't, you know, and it's just so, uh, you know, for selfish reasons, whatever, I just wanted to be able to fix them like that. Yeah. And so trauma and orthopedics, you know, just, drew me surgical types things. So I wanted to do something surgical or pediatrics. I liked working with kids a lot. So what, 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 so, so did what, you decide? So, so what happened was, you know, I had my injury. There was my limitations with my arms. Um, and so the medical school, Einstein was there all along the way. Mm. You know, they were like, uh, whatever we need to do, uh, our goal is to help you graduate and potentially find a career that you can do. Hmm. So initially it was kind of the, med the, the, the specialties that required less arm function, mm -hmm. um, like uh, nuclear medicine, radiology, um, those kinds of things. I mean, potentially psychiatry. Um, you know, I really, I, I would joke, you know, you, 
I could not do radiology. You cannot put me in a dark room and I will not fall asleep. <laughs> you know, I just, I could never do radiology. Um, that was the torturous rotation for me. Um, but, uh, but at one point during, so when I transitioned from, so I was uh, in, you know, in the hospital for a number of weeks uh, for my acute stay. Mm -hmm. um, because they were having trouble stabilizing my spine, reducing it. Um, so I eventually had the surgery, uh, stabilized my spine, and then I was medically stable. I transferred to Mount Sinai to do uh, my rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. um, and it was there that I, I met uh, Dr. Ragnarsson, Dr. Chris Ragnarsson, and Dr. Adam Stein and Dr. Chris Ragnarsson is one of these giants in the field of spinal cord injury rehabilitation. He has since retired, um, you know, and then, and then Dr. Stein was like kind of a, a new doctor on his team. Mm -hmm. uh, so had been with Dr. Ragnarsson for a year. So Dr. Stein was my kind of my doctor and then Dr. Ragnarsson was there every morning checking in on me to see how I do, but so very interested, invested in me, in my case. And he was the one, Dr. Ragnarsson was the one who spoke to me and said, well, have you ever thought about rehabilitation? Hmm. And at that point, I had never thought about it. And then he's the one who introduced me to the model systems. He's like, have you ever heard of the spinal cord injury model systems? I've never heard of this. And he gave me one of the first books, which was a compendium of all these articles written on the model systems. And, and the model systems, just for people that don't know, is? So spinal cord injury model systems are a, it's a model system of care or spinal cord injury care. And the idea is that they provide a continuum of care from time of injury to long-term follow-up. So it's, it's a team approach to caring for an individual with spinal cord injury. And the, the idea evolved, it seems kind of obvious now, but you know, back in the early days, somebody would have a spinal cord injury, they would get treated surgically, they may then sit on the surgical floor for weeks, months, whatever, um, and not necessarily getting rehabilitation, they get pressure injuries, they have all kinds of medical complications, they finally get transferred to rehabilitation, and they're not, you know, they, they have all these problems. Um, and they've lost a lot of muscle, and all these other things, and then people might be discharged in the community and there's no organized follow-up. And so the, the concept of a model system is if we can coordinate with you know EMS, emergency medical services, who pick up people with spinal cord injury, make sure they get delivered to a level one trauma center because the level one trauma center will have round the clock neurosurgery or orthopedic surgery on hand so that we can either stabilize or operate on these people as soon as possible. There are trained professionals who are familiar with these cases who know how to handle them that these individuals get stabilized as soon as possible so that they can start rehabilitating as soon as possible and then transferred to uh, a specialized center that knows rehabilitation uh, for people with spinal cord injury, the equipment needs, 
And then once with the goal of getting them back out in the community, functioning, um, integrated into the community, and then that rehabilitation center uh, can function as a resource for those individuals, you know, because for right now there is no cure for spinal cord injury. Mm -hmm. So there is this need for a continuum of care and long-term follow-up. Uh, people will have whatever associated problems they have and will need to come back uh, for new wheelchairs or just medical follow-up. And people within this field, within the field of rehabilitation, may know spinal cord injury better than other professionals sure. were. So. And, and so that introduction to the model system? Really opened my eyes. So uh, it actually was, uh, and that's one of the things I really, so the model system is much more to me than just like a data collection thing. So it's, to me, the model system of care, it opened my eyes to that there's, I wasn't alone. Um, in fact, it was kind of one of those aha moments for me of like, I, I looked at these names, I looked at these articles, these, these, these centers that focused on care of people with spinal cord injury, that there is these individuals who were dedicated to caring for people like me. And you're talking about centers across the country? Centers across the country. So, you know, there are currently, I think, 14 model systems, uh, spinal cord injury model systems across the country. You know, and it is varied, you know, sometimes there's 16, most recently there's been 14. But these are specialized centers of, of excellence that care for people with spinal cord injury. And, and within these are individuals who collaborate. So it's not, there's communication, there's uh, dedicated individuals who are working with me um, and my family to get me back out in the community, back to medical school, to follow up with me to see what my needs were because, you know, nobody, I mean, you spend your whole life learning how to be able-bodied, right? You know, once you're born, I mean, you, you don't suddenly become consciously aware that you're able-bodied. You've learned over time, right? You walk, you've learned, you've learned how to pee, you learn how to poop, you learn how all these things, right? And managing and, and, uh, uh, um, um, having the ability to to uh, to have control over them, and uh, you do that over time, and you grow into that. And spinal cord injuries just happens overnight, or in a mat in a matter of seconds, and you have to relearn everything. Um, and uh, so, and how do you do that? And and so to have these individuals that are kind of there to help you along that path. Um, and then also to, with that comes other people who've had spinal cord injury who can then act as a resource. You know, and th that was a huge thing for me too, meeting people with my level injury um, because I could see what they were doing. Um, you know, because I can't, I couldn't imagine like how I could drive. I couldn't, I mean, the first time. So eventually I started getting more arm function back. Um, I was able to, you know, finally get up in a manual wheelchair, you know, and in my brain I was like, if I get in a manual chair, I'm going to be doing marathons. 
And the first time I got in a manual chair, I couldn't even push it because, <laughs> you, you know, yourself. it was just too hard. <laughs> I think I even like rolled into a wall and fell over, <laughs> you know, because my balance was challenged and I just sat there stuck, you know, and I couldn't call for help because my voice wasn't strong enough. <laughs> so, you know, it was just like this, you know, and so over time, just working at it, but seeing individuals with levels of injury similar to me and them saying, you know, just keep working at it right. or watching them how they do it because that's how we learn sometimes. I mean, if you're really bright, you can figure it out on your own. I'm not so bright. I have to watch <laughs> other people um, or watch it on YouTube. But, uh, but, you know, that really helped me, you know, transferring into a car, you know, knowing there are these options. Yeah. So, and I think that all came through being associated with a model system because there are these resources. And so, you know, the model systems are more than just collecting data, longitudinal data on outcomes of people with spinal cord injury and doing different research projects. They are uh, a center, a resource for people um, to provide the latest on research and addressing medical complications. So you went on and got your MD then? Yes, yeah, so I went back, you know, I took a year off, did rehabilitation, uh, went back to medical school and started to, uh, you know, at that stage, so I'd finished my third year of medical school, so I was just Actually, the timing of my injury was pretty good. <laughs> you know, I couldn't have probably timed it better because, okay. you know, I got my... So I had that clinical experience of rotating through all my clinical rotations, which the way Einstein at the time organized their medical school was um, the third year. So first two years were class-based uh, with some intro to clinical medicine. Third year was all clinical rotation, so surgery, internal medicine, pediatrics, OB-GYN, rehab, all these different things. And then fourth year was your elective year when you would start to do one month or two month or multiple month rotations to see if what you might want to specialize in, what you might want you to do your residency in, or to take time off to do some research, or do these different things. And so that was a year where I could explore nuclear medicine. I could explore you know, radiology further, mm -hmm. um, rehabilitation, uh, and decide like what is it I want to do my residency in. So, so I, I decided to, uh, I wanted to do my residency in, uh, in rehabilitation. And so, and so I did, I applied to different programs. So I looked at all the model centers across the country. And that's actually how I found out about Kessler, because I had never heard about Kessler. That was my next question. How did you end up here? Yeah, no, it's actually a really, because it's, it's the same, it's kind of the same way like in the Bronx. It's like the Bronx. <laughs> you know, it's like New Jersey. Oh, what's in New Jersey? <laughs> so, so, uh, so I, I said, well, they got a model system here, so let me check it out. So I interviewed here, and that's when, uh, you know, I just, I met uh, uh, Dr. DeLisa, uh, who was the, the chair of the Department of physical medicine and rehabilitation, John Bach, who is the associate chair or vice chair, um, 
Dr. Kirschbaum, this, uh, uh, and then Scott Nadler, who was a sports medicine fellow, and, uh, and had interviews with them. And it was just uh, the most amazing experience. Um, one, Dr. DeLisa, because he was such, you know, a, a giant and leader in the field of physical medicine and rehabilitation. Uh, Dr. Bach, who is this just an amazing clinician. Um, and we talked about everything but medicine, um, <laughs> wine and music. And then uh, Scott Nadler, Dr. Nadler was, uh, you know, just very much patient or and then Dr. Kirschbaum and that was an amazing experience and so uh, you know I went to all the different programs across the country and I really the thing I liked a lot about the Kessler program was Dr. DeLisa was very interested in research mm -hmm. so because he felt that research helped justify the uh, clinical interventions that we provide so or, or the flip side actually is that yeah we need to we need to we need to justify why we do what we do um, and so and that and so he was really a leader in the in all residents had to do a research project um, which was kind of a novel concept at the time and so and so it was like to me it was like I can do a residency I can do research I can do both Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so Kessler was, you know, one of my top choices. So luckily for me, I matched into the program, meaning, you know, they match their candidates, the candidates match them, and then they see how the numbers align. Mm -hmm. So, so I matched into Kessler, um, the, the UM at the time, University of Medicine, Dentistry, New Jersey, um, Department of PM&R, uh, 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 program right. so um, and so but what you need to do before you do your residency is a one-year internship so I did my uh, medical internship you know just to give you general medical experience so uh, I did I decided to stay at Einstein and did my medical internship um, in a mix of pediatrics internal medicine and neurology and I probably wasn't the best strategic mood move, um, just because it was a lot of where I rotated through was an inner city hospital, mm -hmm. and there just aren't necessarily the same level of resources and support. Mm -hmm. And also in my mind, I was trying not to be disabled. So I was pushing myself way too hard and, and not taking good care of myself. And so, and, and not, I'm, I have a hard time asking people for help. Um, and so I was trying to do things myself or, and so I was pushing myself too hard. And so by the end of my internship, I had a, a bad pressure injury, mm. a pressure sore. Um, so I couldn't start my residency right away. And so Dr. Kirschbaum was like, that's fine. Cause at the time he was the director of the residency program here. Um, he, with Dr. Delisa, he's like, that's fine, you know, we'll, you know, just hold that spot and then in a year, you can, uh, uh, you'll start up your residency. Wow, that's great. So I was at Einstein and uh, at one point he was like, well, you know, during this time, this interim, uh, maybe you can come to Kessler and do research. So I, you know, before I start my residency. 
So, uh, so I, I teamed up with somebody who was at the time the director of uh, complementary and alternative medicine. His name was uh, Sam Shiflett, Dr. Sam Shiflett. And they were the, had a big NIH grant to look at complementary and alternative complementary and alternative medicine in stroke and neurological disorders. And so I was like, oh, you know, spinal cord injury, that's a neurological disorder. Um, you know, I was still kind of interested in sports medicine concept. I was starting to become interested in shoulder pain overuse, um, injuries in people with spinal cord injury. Um, and so I was like, how about an acupuncture study for shoulder injuries and spinal cord injury? And he's like, that would work. <laughs> so we, we, he helped me put together an application to NIH uh, for a fellowship for, to encourage, you know, uh, for people, you know, I think it was, uh, you know, people with disabilities and from uh, uh, disparate backgrounds, you know, uh, a disparities uh, fellowship, um, which helped uh, pay my salary, mm -hmm. helped actually cover a research assistant because of my disability. Yeah. Um, and so I started here, started doing research. What year was that? Um, that was in 1997. Do you, how do you think your spinal cord injury affects your perspective now? Like, sure. how does it? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I try not to, I don't want my, to feel like I speak for everybody with a spinal cord injury. No, of course uh, not. You know, and everybody's different. Everybody's yeah. completely different, but, but having the injury definitely gives me an experience. I mean, it certainly, I mean, aside from the paralysis that I experienced at the time of my injury, I immediately felt neuropathic pain. So, and that was almost, in some ways, more disconcerting to me than than the paralysis, because the paralysis was, okay, that's because of my spinal cord injury, but what is this burning pain? and Why won't it go away? And uh, all the strange feelings I had. And, um, and people don't realize that there's other complications with spinal cord injury. Absolutely. Just list some of those for me, just so. Sure, so, so the you know, spinal cord injury can affect bowel function, bladder function. You can have neuropathic pain. Um, it affects, uh, the ability to control one's blood pressure, so people can have very low blood pressure. Uh, they can often have extremes and high blood pressure in response to pain, a condition called autonomic dysreflexia, where the body is feeling the pain, so is having a fight or flight response, but the brain can't counteract that. The brain may know better and, but it can't tell the body to stop because the, the spinal cord injury prevents signals from the brain to get down to the level of where this, this uh, where the, the signals are coming in from the pain. So, uh, you know, there, there are so many different, you know, there's overuse injuries, there's so many different medical complications. And for some individuals, these complications are you know, affect their lives more than the paralysis itself. Because, you know, with the paralysis, paralysis affects their mobility. And if you give that person a wheelchair that fits them, um, they can become very independent. Uh, but 
if they're having problems with bowel or bladder function, if they're having bowel accidents or bladder accidents or infections, urinary tract infections, these are things that keep them at home, um, that can send them back to the hospital. Um, and these, these are the, and that's what interested me uh, was the secondary medical complications because you, you have this spinal cord injury and with rehabilitation, the thing with spinal cord injury is the, the injury happens and then you move on with what you have. And you try to regain as much function and become as independent as you can along the way and you learn so much and you improve so much in many different ways, whether it just be in learning how to do things or some type of recovery. But you can still end up back in the hospital or back at home because of a bladder accident mm -hmm. or because you have infections or pressure injuries. You know, for me early on, pressure injuries, you know, what people commonly call pressure sores, pressure ulcers, you know, the new, they're changing the language all the time. They're now called pressure injuries. Um, which, which comes from your weight being on a certain part of your body they, and you they, not be they, able to tell. Exactly. Like, I, I'll, I'll shift my body weight if I'm getting sore at a spot. And if you're spinal cord injured, you can't feel it. So you don't shift your weight. And eventually exactly. it breaks down your skin. Correct. And so what can happen is, uh, you know, you, you get this, you know, you've lost the muscle because the, 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 the area is paralyzed. You can't feel this, so the bone is pressing against the skin and you get damage. And then eventually you get this breakdown and unfortunately there are no real easy treatments or cures. The best thing to do is to get the person off of the pressure sore, which means getting them in bed. But what can happen is if you're in bed and you're lying on your side or lying on your back, you are at risk for getting pressure injuries in other locations. So. That actually happened to me while I was in medical school. I took off probably another six months while in medical school um, because during my sub-internship, I developed a really bad pressure injury. Um, I tried to heal it up at home um, and only resulted in two other pressure injuries. Um, and that was that point that I went and saw a doctor finally and the doctor yelled at me for being so stupid <laughs> and said, you know, you really need surgery. This is not going to heal on its own. And it was actually the best thing I ever did was to have surgery for the pressure injuries. But it took, it took, I mean, I was in the hospital for probably a month and then the recovery after that and finally getting back to medical school after the pressure injury took time. But those are the things that set you back in such a big way. Um, because you're ready to go on and the last thing you want to do is end up back in a hospital or you know for a person who's fought so hard to regain function to lose function later on in life because of overuse um, they start losing their arms they start you know and they start functionally becoming quadriplegic mm. you know so if you take a para a paraplegic uh, individual with paraplegia and they're using a manual wheelchair and they're, they're doing all these activities, they're racing, they're transferring into their SUV, they're, they're, they're leading a very active lifestyle and they develop shoulder pain and now they can't do these things. And 
Well, I was just going to say, so let's talk about that. Let's talk specifically about that. So we're going to talk about your research for a minute. And I, and I think as I look through the research that you're doing, it's about, the research is about trying to help people rehabilitate themselves to become independent. Is that a fair thing to say? Absolutely. And I think that's, I mean, that is our goal. It really is. Is, I mean, it, if you look at the holistic model of how you would apply something to an individual, it's what is... You, you know, with spinal cord injury, we used to kind of think of the cure as being able to walk again. But really what the cure is, is, you know, trying to get that individual back to being as close to what they were as before their injury in whatever capacity that is. So let's talk about shoulder injury because that's something you're right in the middle of doing. Sure. So tell me. So I want to talk a little bit about your research, and that's one thing that I know you're right in the middle of doing. So tell me about that research. Obviously, shoulder injury in everybody is a situation, but particularly in people with manual wheelchairs. Correct, and and even uh, anybody who, you know, so your arms essentially for people with paralysis, uh, for many of them, their arms become their legs. They're using their arms to their wheelchair to do transfers from the wheelchair to bed or some other surface and back into it to their cars um, all these things and so puts a lot of strain on the shoulders so um, you know this is a problem uh, for this population and so it's looking at the ways of either preventing this from occurring um, or uh, treating it when it happens and, and so really you really in an ideal world you should be approaching it you know both areas so there's the preventing preventing shoulder overuse from happening and then when people do have pain treatments and so I initially started with kind of the treatment concept uh, so that's where my acupuncture so people who had pain immediate pain or actually chronic pain so pain that was they've had for three to six months and just were finding that typical analgesics weren't helping things like ibuprofen, Tylenol, steroid shots. So uh, I did a study looking at whether acupuncture could help these individuals and I found it to be effective for that. Um, I then started to look at more of trying to understand the factors that contribute to it. So the biomechanics, so to speak, of, of shoulder pain. So wheelchair propulsion, um, transfers, those things, and, and understanding how maybe with better technology, by, by setting people up with the best wheelchair, this may help prevent shoulder overuse. Um, and then again, um, treating the, teaching them how to properly use their wheelchair also. So making sure that they propel their wheelchair properly, that they're um, minimizing the risk of developing an up, a repetitive uh, strain injury. Because you know, wheelchair, uh, you know, overuse injuries from wheelchair propulsion, it's really just a repetitive strain injury like what you might see in a factory worker or something like that. And so it's looking at trying to prevent that. And then for those who have pain or pain that's not going away, then looking at different types of treatment 
Yeah, and so, so tell me about the one that you're working on now. So, so yeah, so there's been kind of this evolution late in the last, I would say, 10 to 15 years of, uh, you know, regenerative medicine and the orthobiologics, so to speak, of, of using um, somehow assisting the body in healing itself. So we had done some early study, an early study with platelet-rich plasma, which is when we take blood and uh, isolate blood, spin it down to isolate the platelets, and platelets have growth factors, and uh, you would inject that into damaged tendon to hopefully help with healing, and this had gained a lot of notoriety in the, the, the lay press because uh, back in, I forget when it was, but Heinz Ward had done platelet-rich plasma when he had had an injury when he was playing with the Steelers and they thought he wouldn't be able to play in the Super Bowl. He had this treatment and he had this incredible right. recovery. Right. So uh, that, that cast a big spotlight on platelet-rich plasma. So I'd done a study with that early on with uh, Dr. Jerry Malanga who is a physiatrist uh, who specializes in sports medicine and pain. Um, and so he was looking at various non-surgical interventions uh, to address muscle skeletal injuries in, in, in athletes and able-bodied people who had uh, these types of injuries, whether it be overuse injuries or arthritis or other things like that. And so, we had done the platelet-rich plasma study, and it seen good results in some individuals. The, you know, the next step was to do you know uh, a randomized controlled trial, so a bigger study. And it was at that point that he was starting to explore using uh, microfragmented adipose tissue. So he was looking at different types of tissues. So looking at bone marrow, um, and and. Adipose tissue uh, was another tissue that was, uh, you know, an area of interest because it's easy to access. Because adipose tissue is fat, right? Adipose tissue is fat, yeah. yeah. And people have plenty of it. Plenty of that. (laughs) Yeah, no no matter how skinny you are, you can usually find some fat (laughs) on you. And and it is. It's really using cells from your own body. I mean, there are people using stem cells, you know, there's, there's a lot of different research being done in this area. But we were trying to use cells from people's own bodies. And so uh, the, Dr. Malanga was looking at using adipose tissue because there is the thought that adipose tissue contains growth factors that, uh, uh, that may help with healing. And so uh, he was looking at a particular technique uh, of isolating, taking, harvesting the fat, uh, processing it and breaking it down into smaller, you know, quantities, uh, particles, um, clearing a lot of the excess oils and things that may be detrimental and then injecting that back into, you know, whether it's shoulder or the knee mm-hmm. to address either, uh, you know, a tendon injury or arthritis um, or meniscal tear, cartilage tears. Um, and the idea is it would, it would uh, rebuild itself. 
Well, the idea is we're not quite sure what is happening. Okay. So the, the, at its basis, fat is a cushion. So uh, some of us have more cushion than others. Mm. Um, and so uh, it provides a cushioning that, that, that in itself may perhaps relieve some of the pain. Um, there may be growth factors in there that, you know, uh, does it heal the tendon? That's a tough one because I don't, I don't think studies have actually documented we may see some promising results in imaging, but actually showing rebuilding is very challenging. Mm -hmm. But what it may do is have growth factors that support the remaining tissue. And so if you have tired, old, and worn tissue, uh, is there something about the, the, the adipose tissue that is somehow providing a nurturing environment uh, so that what you still have will function? And it's very challenging because um, imaging on an MRI does not necessarily correspond to what people feel or function. And that's a, as Dr. Malanga will often say, it's, it's not what we see on MRI, it's how the person feels and how they function. And you've had good success with this, right? Absolutely. And so, um, you know, we have, we've, you know, we did a study where we, uh, you know, using microfragmented adipose tissue, to uh, to treat or, or well to to inject injecting that into uh, people with uh, manual wheelchair users with spinal cord injury who had rotator cuff disease so tendon tears um, chronic chronic pain chronic shoulder pain from rotator cuff disease and so these individuals had chronic pain so these were people who had pain for more than six months and had tried other therapies, conventional therapies, um, like uh, physical therapy, steroid injections, uh, medications, and they were still having shoulder pain. And usually in people with, in able-bodied people, if they don't respond to conservative treatment, then you start recommending surgery. And so that is current, what would you would possibly do in a person with spinal cord injury. But for a person with spinal cord injury, having shoulder surgery can have a significant impact on their function and quality of life because they're dependent on their upper limbs. Right. And so you have surgery on your arm, uh, you shouldn't use it for however long that may be uh, while you recover. And so that can have a profound impact on that individual. And psychologically, it can throw them into a deep depression um, because they are now very debilitated um, because they've been so, it's like almost having your spinal cord injury again. Yeah, I can imagine. Speaking of, of things that you mentioned earlier, chronic pain was another thing that you mentioned earlier and another study that your group is working on has to do with neurofeedback. To right, right. Tell, so, tell us a little bit about so that. So this is a study being led by Gene Zanka, and it's it's really trying to see if we we know there is a, a cognitive uh, psychological component um, to pain, right? Because pain is a 
Pain is very difficult because we we often perceive it as a response to to some painful stimulus, right? So you get poked and you feel it. But neuropathic pain is very different because the the trigger is not obvious. And then, it, but the brain is perceiving this pain, and it's uh, so. You know, how the brain responds to that pain and how the brain can influence that pain, um, you may be able to take advantage of that and use it, whether through meditation or some type of, of uh, neurofeedback or, or you know, meditation type therapy, help individuals at least come to terms with their pain you know, uh, perceive it as just a stimulus. Um, you know, I use the analogy of, you know, and I don't know if this is how people are, but, you know, medical marijuana. Mm -hmm. You know, people, people who use medical marijuana, they feel the pain, but they just don't care, mm -hmm. right? It's there, it's a stimulus, but it doesn't bother them. And I think that's, and uh, you know, having neuropathic pain myself, um, you know, I notice there are certainly times when it's more prominent than other times. And is it because I'm more fatigued, so my brain is less you know, capable of suppressing mm -hmm. this, this, this stimulus and, and responding that? But, but so, so Dr. Gene Zanka is leading this study trying to use a real-time fMRI while people practice different methods of reducing their pain. Hmm. To find the best method or the yeah, To see if we method. can find a method, a way for people to reduce their pain, whether through using real-time fMRI, biofeedback, right? Right. We use biofeedback in so many different ways, whether it be a sound or just a visual feedback or whatever, to tell us we're doing the right thing. So for somebody who's meditating and can look at an MRI, a real-time MRI, and see an area of their brain which shows high activity when they have neuropathic pain, and they can lessen the activity in that part of the pain in their brain, um, that could really, you know, have, you know, profound impact on that individual for them trying to come up with ways to control their pain. And I just want to say, and some of that pain is, could be in a place on your body where you don't feel anything else. And that's the, the, the thing that's really sometimes frustrating for people. Because, uh, because you, like I don't feel like my, I don't feel my toes, right? So my, my injury is complete, but it feels like my toes are burning. Um, and so, uh, and it may feel like my butt's burning and my legs are burning and my, my hands. So pretty much from the level, below the level of my injury down, I feel tingling and a tingling sensation. And in some areas... Tingling not in a good way. Tingling not in a good right, way. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, so imagine, I mean, the way able-bodied people can imagine neuropathic pain is when you fall asleep, when you fall asleep on your arm mm -hmm. 
and that your arm has that weird kind of tingling mm -hmm. feeling. Mm -hmm. Imagine that nonstop at a much higher level. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and so uh, that it's potentially there night and day and no matter what you do, it doesn't go away. Um, and why it's happening, you're not quite sure. And you feel it in areas which you can't normally feel. And so there's parts of you that are like, why am I crazy? And the answer is no, because your brain is trying to make sense of stimuli that it's receiving. I mean, I'm sure there's so many different theories to why this is happening. Mm -hmm. But I know certainly, you know, if you think about the person with phantom limb pain, right? Who feels like they, you know, somebody who lost a leg, let's say, and they feel like they have, you know, this horrible pain in their feet. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a type of neuropathic pain. Um, you know, I, after, right after my injury, I would wake up, I was lying in a bed, I couldn't move, and I would tell the nurses, you know, my feet have flipped up over my head, can you please lower them back down? I keep having these spasms that flip my legs up over my head. And they were like, your <laughs> feet are right there. But in my brain, they were, had flipped up over my head. Wow. And it felt so real and so uncomfortable. My body felt so twisted from this happening. And it was just like, you know, but they would look at me like I'm crazy, <laughs> you know, and I think that's how a lot of people feel when they talk to doctors about their pain. It's like this imagined pain that you're feeling. And I think there are so many signals. Your brain is so, is trying to make sense of all of this because suddenly it's not getting input or it's getting a different kind of input. And it's used to processing things one way and it's processing it another way now. And uh, is that maladaptive, uh, you know, change? You know, why, why do people develop neuropathic pain? Um, why do they feel it in their toe? You know, it's just, the, as I said, the brain trying to make sense. I will say if I'm in my wheelchair and I tumble out of my wheelchair, I feel like when, like, I suddenly, like, I'm okay, my feet are down there, and I look, and my feet are not down where <laughs> I thought they are. Mm -hmm. So I feel like my toes are burning, but if you take my toes and put them behind my head, and I had my eyes closed, I'd still feel like they were sitting in my footrest. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I just, I, I don't feel them. But my brain is telling me my toes are down there. But it's only probably because I'm visually looking and it knows that's where my toes should be. But if you move them, then, yeah. But like I said, so it's the brain. So I think it's very, and for people, you know, where it is, oh, it's in your mind, it's crazy and all that. But in truth, it is, you know, because why can one person tolerate being stabbed or shot, you know, and handle that pain in a different way than somebody, the similar, a different person who has the same type of injury right. and their brain. So it's very much a, a, a subjective experience and the stimulus that you're receiving and how your brain is interpreting that and how you are responding to that and all it, factor into that. And does aging factor into that now too? Because I, I assume people with spinal cord injuries are living longer. So what is, what is the complication of that?
we we all are affected by aging, right? So able-bodied people are affected by aging. When you have a spinal cord injury, there are some models that show that it sets you off on an accelerated trajectory for aging. So, for example, age, uh, overuse injuries. So, you know, people, able-bodied people develop rotator cuff injuries, arthritis, um, but usually later in life. Uh, they, cardiovascular disease. People with spinal cord injury are prone to cardiovascular disease probably at an earlier age, um, just because the way their body metabolizes fat and, um, you know, other things, the, the, the autonomic, the, the automatic nervous system is uh, disrupted and how, how you metabolize things changes and, and that can affect your risk for things that might affect older people. So certainly fractures um, are problem in people with spinal cord injury from bone loss. Mm. Um, because you're not standing on your you're bone. You're not standing. It's not even just standing. You've got to be actively moving. Mm. Simply standing doesn't help. Mm. Bone reacts to force. And so if you run, then that will give you, you know, stronger bone. You know, then if you walked or, you know, weightlifting can, you know, increase, you know, bone density. But for people with spinal cord injury, they don't have muscles contracting. And so that's why, you know, Dr. Gail Forrest is looking at studies where you combine therapies. So you, you give them, you know, electrical stimulation to make the muscles contract against the bone, even though that individual can't contract the bone. By making what muscle they have contract, you can force you you force the bone to remodel itself because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. bone is dynamic it grows so you talked about wheelchairs is there have you done studies on wheelchairs or improving wheelchairs well in the concept not so much in design but uh in the sense of i think the way we approach prescription wheelchair prescription in the sense because we, just to interrupt, because wheelchairs are prescribed. You, you don't just go pick one up at Kmart. You go to a doctor and someone figures out what size, what, where your butt's going to be, where everything's going to be. Okay, I just want to make that yeah, clear no, to people. No, no, so, no. So you really want to set, this is a device that helps the person get around. It's their, their, their main source of mobility. And so for somebody who's using a manual wheelchair, you want to give them a custom fit wheelchair that's adjusted perfectly to their body. Um, you want it made from the lightest possible material because just changes in a few pounds can make a huge difference. And so we know that if a person's in the wrong type of wheelchair, they'll develop shoulder pain and rather quickly uh, because pushing pushing the standard wheelchair around all the time subjects the upper body to a, a lot of load. And, you know, that's, that's tough. It's physically demanding. Yeah, you're pushing around 120 to 200 pounds, yeah, I depending mean, so, on how much you weigh. So, so, yeah, so, I mean, these, these larger chairs can weigh anywhere, you know, from, uh, you know, 40, 50 pounds, um, you know, ultralight wheelchairs, I mean, they're getting the frames down to 12, 
20 pounds. I mean, it's kind of drawing the same kind of ideas from the bike, racing bikes, you know, where people try to get really light. And I, people may think that it's being a little ridiculous, like really does a half a pound make a big difference? <laughs> but speaking from my own personal experience, when I've sat in a wheelchair and pushed a wheelchair that was just either my own wheelchair that has a component that's slightly heavier or and I switch it out with a lighter component, I notice a difference. Mm. It really makes a big difference. And, and so, um, so while I have not technically been involved with research design, I do, I do use it. Certainly education forms a cornerstone of the research we do. So I don't, I mean, and that's where the clinical hat comes into the ring when I'm seeing a participant for a study. If I see that they're in the worst possible chair and they're telling me I've got this chronic shoulder pain, <laughs> I'm saying, this is, gonna be this easy. is, well, you, I'm not going to, look, this is like, you probably don't need to do my study. If we get your chair addressed, your shoulder pain will go away. Um, most likely, or let's do that first, right. because you're pushing around a, a chair that's too heavy. It doesn't have the right types of wheels. There are so many, and that's just putting the strain on your upper limbs. Uh, just like a guy I screened who was complaining of, this was way back with my acupuncture studies. Um, he was complaining of shoulder pain. Um, and I was asking him, well, when did it start and stuff? And he was like, yeah, well, my car broke down. So I'm wheeling three miles one way to work and back every day. And I'm like, get your car fixed. That'll help. You know, uh, you know, I mean, if I enroll you in my study and you get your car fixed, you're going to get better. <laughs> And I'm going to say it's from my study, but it's because right. your car got fixed. So, you know, I think, you know, it's it's so important. And I think, you know, it's uh, these are the simple things that we can do. It's not rocket science, but it, it's very challenging because wheelchairs, a custom fit wheelchair is expensive. It can mm -hmm. rock, run around five to seven thousand dollars. I imagine socioeconomic strata has something to do with how people recover, right? Yeah, I mean, certainly Dr. Denise Fife is looking at the healthcare disparities in individuals with spinal cord injury. And so whether people, you know, who, you know, from racially diverse or disparate backgrounds are more, have less proved functional outcomes, you know, and she certainly has seen that. Um, that the functional outcomes in people who are black or Hispanic um, may not be on the level of uh, those who are white, mm -hmm. non-Hispanic non whites. Um, so, uh, um, and there are so many different factors that can factor into that. Um, and, but, you know, certainly, you know, insurance can play a huge role um, well, and just because you have insurance doesn't mean the insurance company is going to be willing to cover your wheelchair um, or to cover a titanium chair versus an aluminum chair. Um, you know, and to them, a titanium chair seems like an extravagant purchase. Um, do you need state-of-the-art materials? But titanium helps dampen vibration. 
Um, it's lighter than aluminum. It's a couple pounds, but for that individual who's pushing that chair all day and or lifting that wheelchair into their car mm -hmm. uh, every day, that, that little weight makes a huge difference. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, yeah. What, what would you say is the most exciting thing you're working on right now? Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, I think, well, there's a couple different areas. So I, I certainly think the microfragmented adipose tissue is a very exciting area uh, just to see the improvements that we've seen in some of the individuals. Mm -hmm. Not everybody improves, um, but there are certainly people um, who have had pretty remarkable improvements in pain and function. Um, people who that I would be skeptical would have improvement. So it ranges from the, the, the very active person where it's kind of like you really shouldn't be doing that. So you know, what can happen is people, pain can limit people um, so that they don't do things they shouldn't be doing. Right, so I should say, you know, um, they, they may not do these crazy workout routines or wheel three miles each way each mm -hmm. day mm -hmm. because they have shoulder pain. And that's, that's a good thing because they, they are putting themselves at risk. And I find sometimes when I remove that pain, they go back to some of these behaviors. <laughs> yeah, yeah so, so, the, so, so we have one gentleman who is just so active. But that's him. That's his quality of life. And that's what he wants to do. And I'm going to suggest maybe he doesn't push it so hard. But that's who he wants to be. Um, so he still is pain-free after almost two years. So coming up on two years. And then there was an older woman who pushed a manual wheelchair who had been affected. Her function was quite impaired. Um, and her range of motion was limited and all these things. And, you know, one month, two months after the treatment, she still had pain, but she could move her, lift her arm up over her head pain without it causing pain. Um, so her function was much improved. And then later on, her pain became improved. So um, I just think this is another tool in our toolbox. So I'm not saying this is the be-all to end-all for curing rotator cuff disease or regenerating tendons because, I mean, we're, we're starting to do, we're doing MRIs of the tendon, mm -hmm. but imaging is not an exact science. And so we're trying to um, understand that better too because as, as we were saying earlier, um, what we see on an MRI doesn't necessarily correlate with how people feel. Mm. There are plenty of studies that have looked in people without shoulder pain, uh, of MRIs that have been done in people without shoulder pain who don't have, who, who have MRI tears. So they have a tear on MRI, but they have no shoulder pain. Mm. And then there are people who have pretty significant shoulder pain and you do an MRI and it's like, it doesn't look that impressive. Right. So uh, they don't always correlate. And that goes across multiple conditions. So. What do you think the next innovation is going to be? Where is it going to come from? Like in the next 10 years oh, or 20 years? I really think, I think assistive technology is really the key. I mean, I Are think we're talking we're, like 
They, well, Google Mini, is that what we're Well, I or? think it's across the board because it allows, I mean, so whether it be improvements in wheelchairs and, I mean, you take a power wheelchair, for example, and you take uh, this chair can take somebody who has some of the most severe mobility impairments and, and give them mobility that they normally wouldn't have. That they can operate independently, they can tilt in space to do a pressure relief to prevent a pressure injury. Um, they can stand up and look at somebody in eye level or assist with their transfer in and out of bed so that whether uh, it makes it easier on their caregiver or their assistant. But this just gives them mobility and they're back out in the community and with the way it can interface with environmental controls within their home, they can't use their arms um, to operate switches or turn on TVs or operate a computer, but they can use their voice. And they can be just as plugged in and doing work and living a productive life as they were before their injury. And in many ways, it focuses your mind on trying to take advantage of technology. So I think the, the bit, and so part of that lends its way to exoskeletons, you know, and then also neural stimulation. Um, I just think these are all tools in our toolbox. And so I, I don't think, we used to talk about the magic bullet, you know, so is sure. there gonna be one thing that we can take as a cure? And I think it's a series of things that are going to help people become more and more independent, whether that would be with bowel, bladder, pain, all these different things. Because as I go back to the one thing of some people may be, you know, getting around the wheelchair, I'm fine with the wheelchair. But the fact that I have bowel accidents or bladder accidents, if I could do neural stimulation to be able to have better bowel function, that beats walking any day, um, yeah, or my pain. If I didn't have to deal, you know, for me, it's like I wish I could get rid of my neuropathic pain because it's there. It affects my work. It affects things, you know, on different levels. We, I have good days, bad days, but if I could eliminate my pain, I would just that would be fantastic. And so. You know, I just, uh, it's hard to answer that question because I think there are so many different things that are working together. So, I mean, we talk about regenerative medicine, you know, I hesitate to use the term stem cell because there's, it's such a loaded term. Right, right. Um, but, you know, using the body to either heal or, or do something to address problems that we run into, technology to help us do things better. Um, environmental controls um, and, and nerve neural stimulation um, I think are all very exciting. Well here's an easier question, this is my last question. What keeps you here at the Kessler Foundation? Oh, well I mean for me it's, it's, it's personal you know because I mean I'm, I'm a, it's very interesting because I am a person with a spinal cord injury doing spinal cord injury research, and actually it's very profound if, when I look at it, because I'm a person with spinal cord injury who is actually director of a spinal cord injury model system or a co-director with Dr. Kirschbaum. And so, you know, it's kind of overwhelming at times. And so to, to actually, I mean, one, I mean, the research interests me, but also, my personal experiences I'm able to share 
with other people with spinal cord injury because, you know, I drive, um, I work, I, you know, have a girlfriend, my life has gone on. And so for newly injured people to have that conversation with me to, to say, you know, I feel like my toes are burning, am I crazy? It's like, no, you're not crazy, you know? And I know, you know, your doctor may say, you know, this imagined pain or whatever. It's not imagined. Well, it's your, it is, because your brain, but it's your brain telling you this. Well, I heard a really profound quote from a monk or something like this, it was in a novel, and it was a monk woke up about, after having a dream about being a butterfly and then thought, or am I a butterfly dreaming about being a monk? And, and so, and, you know, and you think about what is it, the matrix, and what is reality. So yeah, it's, it's all in our head, so. I can't think of a better place to end it. <laughs> Thank you, Trevor, I appreciate it. Oh, sure. For more information about Kessler Foundation, go to KesslerFoundation.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts.